an incoming transmission from the library. It appears that Blue Stocking has been able to make contact and the steampunk dollhouse will begin transmitting momentarily. Stay tuned for more news from these intrepid defenders of all our literary freedoms. and welcome to the Steampunk Dollhouse. My name is Blue Stocking, and I will be your librarian and your host for the next hour or so. If you're a returning listener, you have my eternal thanks for continuing to tune in, as always. If this is your first time in the Dollhouse, welcome. Please have a seat, settle in, uh, but do be aware that the show is by necessity going to be chock-a-block of spoilers, So if that's going to be an issue, uh, you should probably turn back now and read today's book before you continue. It's okay. I'll be here when you get back. Um, And one thing that I want to say right off the bat, uh, just to get this out of the way, I do have a really, really gnarly cold this weekend. Um, Mr. Stocking brought something into the house that affected all of us. Um, So my throat is a little bad and I do sound really stuffy, I'm aware. I'm going to do my best to keep the sneezing and the coughing um, (laughs) to cut out as much of it as possible. But if I sound a little weird or a little out of breath, that's why, just because I'm sick. So moving on, Um, getting that out of the way. Now, I know I usually start um, our shows with a rundown of all the terrible events that are happening around the world, but I there's so many terrible things that are happening around the world right now. But I wanted to actually go in a different direction today simply because um, I wanted to go back to some of the things that I first discussed with you when I decided to start the show. Um, And at that time, I said that I believe that steampunk could be used as a tool for examining the world as it is and as it was in a different light. And I also said that there were certain books that I wouldn't cover because I didn't feel that they had the political slant that I was looking for. Um, Now, when I said that, that did not mean that I held anything against those books or that I thought they didn't have value. Um, the fun, adventurous, goggles and top hats, you know, books, they do have value. They are fun and they are exciting and they are adventurous. But I also don't think that it's wrong to take a select number of steampunk books and pull out the political threads and examine them and look at them. Um, because science fiction by its very nature, is going to be representative of the events and the fears that are contemporaneous to um, to the writing. It's, it's just the way it is. It's the way science fiction has been from the very beginning with Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and fears of, you know, childbirth and mortality and, you know, what science was beginning to be able to accomplish. So science fiction is going to be political. Um, I don't know that there's a way around that. I'm sure someone will let me know if there is. Um, the reason I bring this up, there's a book that I have been, um, reading, uh, as research on my own, and it's called Light Clockwork, uh, Steampunk's Past, Presence, and Futures. Uh, it's a very interesting book. Um, there were a couple things in it, though, that I wasn't, it struck a chord with me. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I was having a bit of an existential crisis, uh, over the last few weeks. 
over what exactly it is that I think I'm doing and why I'm doing it and what I actually know versus what I think I know. Um, and it's not to say that this threw me into a tailspin or anything. It's just Mike Prashan, Dr. Mike Prashan, uh, is one of the people that I, I really look to. Um, I've used his, his papers and his, his writings a lot in my own writings. And he was, uh, the, the book is a collection of essays, and in the book he says, one of the things that he says uh, in his essay is, if steam, even if steampunk is inherently political, and because of its genesis in the writing of Moorcock is anarchist by association, is there anything less anarchistic than imposing boundaries for what steampunk must be? Worst yet, what sort of anarchist needs the authorization of books that are decades old to justify the appropriation of the steampunk aesthetic for political ends? And I don't know that Dr. Prashan is necessarily saying we shouldn't impose the political in steampunk. I think what he's saying is that we shouldn't impose it where not where it necessarily isn't supposed to be. Um, and one of the things that he brings up is the early steampunkers, the steampunk novels like um, Jeter and Blaylock and uh, Tim Powers, and how theirs were, were fun and, and rompy and you know adventurous and not political. And I get where he's coming from in not imposing politics on it and, and making it more than it needs to be, but. I don't see that it's necessarily wrong to try to draw parallels between the books, even if they're not inherently political in nature, which is there's some books that we'll be covering later on down the road um, that may not seem like they have much to say politically politically wise, but that's kind of the whole point of this, right? Digging in, finding the political, um... So, like I said, I'm, I'm having a bit of a, a back and forth about what it is that I'm actually doing here. <laughs> so, that's what's going on with that. Um, and the other thing, the, the book, this book, it was a good, it's a good book. It's really good, but it threw me off um, with some of the things it was saying. And one of the others, um, a scholar named David Pike, um, I, he did upset me because what he said was, his was his article was about um, the steampunk city, and his he said to describe the steampunk city is very close to a truism. The steampunk city is overwhelmingly London, and it is inevitably Victorian. Um, and he also said, however elastically the relationship may be conceived, and however far it may be stretched, Victorian London constitutes perhaps the only constraints that steampunk allows for its wild speculations. And I heartily heartily disagree with that. I do not believe that every steampunk novel is born out of Victorian London or modeled, however, unconsciously off of Victorian London. I don't think that's true. I don't, um, which is also part of the reason that I'm pulling the books that I am, because he, he draws in that even Sherry Priest's Bone Shaker, you know, the, the underground of Seattle is based off of Victorian London. And there were undergrounds, there were seedy undergrounds before Victorian London. Um, so I don't know that that's... I've never spoken to Sherry Priest about it, so I don't know. But I don't think that she drew from, however consciously or unconsciously, from Victorian London. Um, a lot of towns have undergrounds that's not specific to to London. Um but again, what do I know? He's an established scholar, and I'm not. But I do disagree. I think that steampunk can be any city. Steampunk can be born out of a completely brand new city that has nothing to do with London, which is also um, a big part of the theme. The, the big part of the theme of the books, that, the book that we're discussing today, because we need to break away from that idea that steampunk is inherently, overwhelmingly, inevitably Victorian. It's not. 
it doesn't have to be. Um, we and he's and Prashant is also right when he says, "Is there anything less anarchistic than imposing boundaries for what steampunk must be?" Steampunk doesn't have to have boundaries. It shouldn't have boundaries. It should be boundless. It's like I've said before. It's the ultimate DIY. Don't place constraints on it. It's not all white people in pith helmets. <laughs> looking for the mouth of the Nile. It doesn't work that way. It can be anything and everything. It can be what we say it is, whatever we want it to be, because that's the nature. That's the nature of the anarchy and the punk and the building and the making and the repurposing. Um, and these kind of inventions, these kind of things can be born anywhere out of anything. Victorian London was not the be-all, end-all. It may have been somewhat the heart of the industrial age, but New York... You had a, 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 you know, New York and a lot of the, the Northeast in America had their own thing going on with the, <laughs> in the age of, you know, industrialization. And technology is not specific to one particular place or time. All countries develop technologies and evolve. It's just a matter of who gets in there sometimes and, and spurs it along. But these places don't always need a spur. They come up with it on their own. Um, so that's my rant for the day. <laughs> Um, and we'll go into more of that when we discuss uh, this week's book. So that is my take once again on why I'm doing the show um, and why I pick the books that I do. Because steampunk is everywhere and it can be everything and it's not tied to one place. And we need to scrape off the Victorian linen. And I love me some Victorian linen, I do. But we need to scrape it off and we need to move in different directions. Um, we need to see what else is out there. We need to see what, what other stories can be created. And the book that we're talking about today, um, there are so many stories that were created, and they're so amazing. And I don't know. I, I was floored by a lot of them. So we are going to take a quick break um, so I can get some water and cough drops. We're going to listen to a quick ad from Audible. And then let's talk. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Now, the title that we're discussing today is, unfortunately, not available in an audio format. So for this week's audio selection... I am recommending The Clockwork Universe, Isaac Newton, The Royal Society, and The Birth of the Modern World by Edward Dolnick. This is a narrative of the 17th century scientific revolution, and Dolnick embeds it with the mathematical discoveries of Kepler, Galileo, Newton, um, and wraps it in the prevailing outlook of their time. It's a really fascinating and intimate look into the minds of some of our most revered scientists and thinkers. So please visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download the Clockwork Universe or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. All right, kiddos. Uh, this week's episode, our book is The Sea is Ours, Tales from Steampunk Southeast Asia, and it is an anthology, and it's edited by Jamie Goh and Joyce Chung. 
they are both uh, very active in the um, fantasy, steampunk, science fiction communities. Um, both very, very busy. And a few years ago, they had this idea because there was so little in the way of Asian, any Asian steampunk, um, but especially Southeast Asian. And even if there was any, it wasn't always the best put together. So they had the idea to put this out. They did an Indiegogo, uh, collected authors, collected money, collected artwork, got it all put together and released. And from the Indiegogo page, uh, their description is uh, that Southeast Asia is the lesser-known Asia. It's the Asia that's confused with other Asias. And um, it's, what they put is that some of us know, some know us by our typhoons and tsunamis as the land where refugees and cheap labor come from or as the sad, downtrodden third-world region where Westerners go for their exotica and sex tourism. But Southeast Asia is a rapidly modernizing region, home to unique flora, fauna, cultures with long histories of towering civilizations, and people picking ourselves up in the wake of imperialism. Southeast Asia is a place of far-flung dreams, rising metropolises, high-end technology, and myriad languages. Each Southeast Asian country has its own unique history and treasures. So that's from their Indiegogo page. Um, that's what they want to make make the West, especially, to see. And now, Southeast Asia itself, or Southeastern Asia, uh, it's a subregion of Asia and consists of countries that are geographically south of China, east of India, west of New Guinea, and north of Australia. Uh, it's bordered to the north by East Asia, to the west by South Asia and the Bay of Bengal to the east by Oceania and Pacific Ocean, and to the south by Australia and the Indian Ocean. The region is the only part of Asia that lies within the southern hemisphere, uh, and it consists of two geographic regions currently. Uh, the first region has mainland Southeast Asia, or the first region is mainland Southeast Asia, uh, historically known as Indochina, um, if you're familiar with that phrase, and it comprises Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, uh, Thailand, Myanmar or Burma, and West Malaysia. Um, the Maritime Southeast Asia, which is historically known as the East Indies and the Malay Archipelago, uh, comprises Indonesia, East Malaysia, Singapore, the Philippines, East Timor, um, Brunei, Christmas Island, Andaman and Nicobar Islands, and Cocos or the Keeling Islands. Um, also, real quick, I wanted to say my only language is English. Um, I can usually manage to at least get close as I possibly can with Eng or with German and the Romance languages and things like that, but this is completely out of my wheelhouse, so I'm going to do my best to pronounce it as correctly as possible. Um, so I intend no disrespect to anybody if I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, some of these I, I, do, I look up as many as I, as I can on YouTube and things like that for pronunciations, but that's not always available. Um, so please forgive me if I horribly, horribly mispronounce something. Um, and let me know so that I can do better. Um, okay, so Southeast Asia, uh, it's about 4.5 kilometers. Uh, it's about 10.5% of Asia or 3% of the Earth's total land. Um, total population is 641 million people, so that's about 8.5% of the world's population. And it is the third most populous geographical region in the world after Southeast Asia and East Asia. Uh, it's very culturally and ethnically diverse. There are hundreds of languages spoke by many different ethnic groups. 
so that's kind of an idea of, of where these stories are coming from. Now, there's 12 stories in all in this book, uh, all very different, all really amazing. Um, and also, uh, full disclosure here, I don't generally dig on anthologies very much. Um, it's not anything against anthologies themselves, but I always feel cheated. Like, I want more of the story, so I, anthologies have never been a favorite of mine. Um, I don't I don't like the snippets. I want more. Um that being said, there are some very good short stories. I mean, there are, there are a lot of good short stories out there. They're just a little more difficult for me. But I thought this would be a good one to use uh, for the show, and the stories were actually quite beautiful. Um, there were there were a few that I really, really enjoyed, um, but we'll get into that in a minute. Now, as I said, the book was put together by um, Joyce Ching. She is a writer in her own right. She lives in Singapore. She does a lot of historical space, urban fantasy. She likes werewolves. Um, she's very good. She writes a lot. Uh, she, a lot of her, her time nowadays, she, she puts a lot of her chapters out through her Patreon. Um, so I would suggest checking her out. I will put some links in the show notes um, so you can find them, her and Jamie. Uh, and she also co-edited another anthology. It was literary speculative microfiction about the city and nation of Singapore. She edited that with Aom Curtin, uh, and again, like I said, I'll give the links for um, their pages in the show notes. Now, Jamie Go, she is Chinese. She's lived in Malaysia, Canada, the U.S. Um, you may already know her. I knew her uh, before I started all this. Not knew her, but I knew of her, uh, because she has a post-colonial steampunk blog called Silver Goggles, and she researches steampunk from the, the critical race theory perspective. She got her master's in steampunk, um, and I will be quoting from some of that later. And she is currently doing her PhD dissertation on the same subject. Um, she's published some short fiction on her own. She also co-edited The Omnibus of Dr. Bill Shakes and The Ma- Magnificent Iomic Pentatrameter. Um, and she also put together a book called Trial by Whiteness. Okay, pardon the pause. I had to look it up. Trials by Whiteness. It was edited by Jamie Goh. It's from the, the Wiscon Chronicles, Volume 2. And it was um, experiences with science fiction from writers who are not white um, and what they have to put up and what they have to deal with. Uh, it's, a, it's also a very good one. Um, I will try to post a link for that one as well. Um and what I found interesting is that they were actually advised on this by Nisi Shaw, who we met some few episodes ago for Everfair. Uh, so we we already know and love Nisi Shaw. Um, so that is the, uh, the the book. I said the book is divided into twelve stories. There is on the consequence of sound uh, by Timothy D. McCauley, Chasing Volcanoes by Marilog Ongwei, um, Ordained by L. L. Hill, The Last Aswang by Alessa Hinlow. Life Under Glass by, I'm going to try this one, Nevo. A Between Severed Souls by Paolo Chikiamko. The Unmasking of the Quadro Amoroso by Kate Osias. Uh, Working Woman by Olivia Ho. Spider Here by Robert Liao. The Chamber of Souls, I cannot pronounce that. I would say Zim Quinn, but I'm probably wrong. Um, Petrified by Ivana Mendels. And The Insects and Women Sing Together by Pear Newalik. Again, I apologize for my mispronunciations on that. Um, 
so those are the stories that comprise this one. It's not a very long book. Uh, again, it's full of short stories, so it's not very long. Uh, but they're all they're also so very different and and so incredible. Um, so we're gonna actually and do this a little different than usual. We're gonna break down the stories themselves in part two and um, discuss a few things about the stories and their importance in part two. So part one is gonna be a little shorter than it usually is, and also can't talk. Um, so we're gonna go ahead and that is part one. We are going to take a another break. We are going to hear some words from some friends of mine going to hear a lovely song and then we will be back to actually break down um the stories and their importance um within the steampunk canon and why we need to be reading them so we will be right back a body falls past the window whatever <laughs> and you put put it down and you feel like shaky all over both your hands are covered immediately peg him as a cogman so we've known each other for years it's Sumeshi. one of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat damn we had a oh my god so you took money from him huh? we talked about this earlier <laughs> it is being attacked by the forces of the American confederation <laughs> yeah. are you constantly checking for traps <laughs> the steamrollers adventure podcast is available at rigstories.com or on iTunes. You can also get it at Stitcher and Google Play. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is also sponsored by the Judgment Night Radio Hour. Are you a fan of audio drama? Do you enjoy classic pulp fiction in the style of Dashiell Hammett, macabre southern gothic stories of the likes of Cormac McCarthy, or stirring drama reminiscent of August Wilson? then tune in to the Judgment Night Radio Hour. The Judgment Night Radio Hour is an audio drama and fiction anthology podcast featuring lurid, rousing tales of existential angst, metaphysical mayhem, spiritual crisis, sin, repentance, redemption, justice, and judgment. Presented in the style of an old AM gospel radio broadcast, the series is hosted and narrated by the ominous fire and brimstone preacher Reverend Reginald Cephas Weaver III, who gives soul-stirring sermons in the form of Southern Gothic, neo-noir dramas, thrillers, and mysteries. Imagine if Flannery O'Connor directed The Twilight Zone with an all-black cast. This sinister series of short stories and radio plays can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more, follow their Twitter at jnightradio, visit their website on www.judgmentnightradio.com, or like its Facebook page at Judgment Night Radio. Turn or burn, literary listeners, but don't turn that dial.
Listeners, welcome back to the show. We just heard With Her by Rose Blanket, and if you enjoyed that, you can find that on the Free Music Archive. The link is in the show notes. If you would like to hear more music of the steampunk adjacent, steampunk variety uh, around the corner from steampunk, check out Clockwork Cabaret. They have a wonderful podcast that's been running for a very long time. It's uh, Emma Davenport and Lady Addercop. And they are Clockwork Cabaret Podcast, and they are at clockworkcabaret.com. They released uh, just about every Friday. Okay, and also, because you can't see it through the magic of the internet, um, I recorded all of the other stuff yesterday, but this second part I had to record. Today, on Sunday, uh, I'm upload late, as you can hear, my voice is not doing so well, so we are going to go through the stories in The Sea is Ours. Um, I'm going to go into a little more detail on a few of them that I like the most. Um, but first, I wanted to talk about um, the paper that Jamie Go wrote her master's thesis. Um, I can't remember if I brought this up yesterday or in the first part of the show. Um, Jamie Go wrote her master's thesis um, on the subject of steampunk, and it's titled Towards Chromatic Chronologies, Using the Steampunk Aesthetic for Postcolonial Purposes. And I will also have the link. The link for that is going to be in the show notes. And I have a couple of pieces that I pulled out of that that I thought were... It kind of explains largely also what she's doing with... Um, or why this book is so important, why beyond... <laughs> why the Sea is Ours is such an important book. And in her thesis, Jamie said, In sum, though the steampunk aesthetic can certainly be used to reproduce tropes of, tropes of empire, there are no limits on how to wield it, allowing space for the questioning, challenging, and subverting dominant ideology and representations. There are strategies to be gleaned from the available works on how best to combine an aesthetic that draws from the past to create a story relevant today. 
As steampunk grows popular, it becomes imperative that people of color take this opportunity to shape its direction by centering protagonists like themselves, creating non-white or multiracial casts, exploring less studied histories, and pointing the ways to the ways of speaking a single language as varied as the peoples of any given time and place. And I think that they've done this um, with this book. It was wonderful. It was completely, well, not completely non-white, but almost completely. Um, it, it's centered on Southeast Asian people and their struggles and their strife and their environmental challenges and their own race challenges. And it brought the steampunk into it. And sometimes the steampunk was very overt and sometimes it was barely a whisper, but it was there. It made itself known. And something else that she said, um, that was also very fitting. She says, our histories, our present, our existence are scars on the landscape of the conventional of the neo-colonial march on a singular vision of progress that would have us contained in neat ideals of happy multiculturalism. We must take to our time travel machines and bring back the past to show why we cannot fit in these tidy boxes, why we should not and shall not fade with time. We must take hold of our pasts now to write our own futures. And for so much of steampunk, it is taking hold of the past, but the, so much of the past that's been represented has been the past of the white Europeans and what they've done. Um, like we discussed earlier, it's, you know, steampunk, people think that steampunk inevitably harkens back to Victorian London. And just because they were conquerors doesn't mean that it all started with them. I don't know if that makes sense. But the need for other voices is paramount in any genre at any time. Everyone likes to open a book and be able to see themselves inside of it or read a story or watch a movie. And the more that we say that steampunk has to be this way, has to be Victorian London, has to be European the more we lock others out and the the more we lose out on some incredibly rich stories and important stories. Not only are these, these are, are massively, most of all they're important for the people who are people of color who are reading them. Southeast Asians who will read these stories and say, hey, <laughs> that sky pirate is like me and that's what we need. But also of lesser importance but still important is that the white steampunk in ears can read these stories and see a different side to the thing that they love and open up and accept it and see that this is good and we need more of this. We need to see more of these at conventions and cosplays and in movies and it's... We need more. So throughout the book, like I said, there's about 12 stories. Um, the first one on the consequence of sound by Timothy D. McCauley. Uh, this one was really cool because it's full of airships, and they're so completely not your typical airships. They're, they sound beautiful. They sound gorgeous. Um, the description was, The royal galleon's masts, each thick around as the torsos of seven, seven men, seem to defy the very sky itself. Her massive wooden hull, made from the most ancient and darkest Nara wood and inlaid with gold and mother of pearl, cast a long shadow over the houses and churches beneath it. The whole city, it seemed... Well, it's a silent awe at the sight of the great ship flying in from the sea. And I love that description. I love it. And the way that the airships are piloted, they have magical navigators who play 
the airships through the air uh, with a what's called a kuban or a jaw harp. And there's also some descriptions of instruments that sound like um, violins, very similar to violins. But it goes under the jaw. They have to play a certain type, a certain way, a certain type of notes, and that will propel the ship up and down and backwards and forwards. And only the very best of the best are able to do this. And it was very, very beautiful. Now, the next story was ordained by L.L. Hill. Um, this was about um, brothers Precha and Prassert. Precha is a monk. Prassert, um, his brother, they appear to be royalty, uh, but Precha decided to become, or took on the role of a monk. And Prassert comes to visit him to bring him back to court because he's, they feel he's needed. Um, something that's really that struck me about this is how Prazard has the outfit and the bearing of a European um, to the point that it mentions that he's wearing his tailored black suit and a pith helmet. And pith helmet, of course, has become very largely, to a very large extent, a symbol of that British colonialism, you know, the striding across the desert desert and your, you know, your uniform and your pith helmet. And so it was interesting that Prazert would have adopted that, um, almost taking on the role of the, the oppressors or the colonizers. This one was interesting because Precha is pulling wind-up creatures, wind-up bugs and little creatures out of an, an orb. It's described as an orb of frozen, frozen ocean, so there's large, large magical quality to it. But the wind-up, you know, uh, there's digging wasps. They actually, they dig and they burrow and they, they're they had little drills, which I thought was really cool. Um, so that was ordained. And then in Chasing Volcanoes, uh, Marilog Angwe, this is set in the Philippines. Um, they are pirates or volcano chasers because the whole the whole of the Philippines, is a, there's a volcano that's been going off and going off and going off, and people continue to try to live near it because they have no other choice. Um, but the pirates will come in and they'll leach the energy out of the volcanoes and it does make it marginally safer for a time, but what they're doing is illegal. Um, but they end up taking on a member of the new Filipino royalty. Um, at first, and at first the captain is going to hand her over for the, for the bounty, but they change their minds. Oh, and one important thing that I also forgot to mention about all these, I think I forgot to mention it. Um, not only is it completely uh, Southeast Asian, there's also a large amount of... Uh, there's a large queer slant to it, which is also um, really refreshing. Um, there's not a whole lot of romance in it at all, but most of what is included is going to be queer, and that also speaks to people that need to see that, that need to have that in their characters, that need to see characters like them. Not everything is white and heteronormative, and we need to, or heterosexual, and we need to need to see more. So that's that becomes a part of Chasing Volcanoes. Not a massive part, but it made for a really good story. Um, in The Last Eswong by Alessa Hinlow, this was one of my favorites. And again, it's Filipino. And um, there's a... She's called a Diwata, which I looked it up, a Diwata. And I'm probably saying that wrong, but I'm <laughs> trying. It's a type of deity or spirit, but in this story, she's been elevated to... Uh, she's a goddess, and she's being served by um, Aswang. And these are shape-shifting monsters in Filipino folklore. Um, I had heard of them before. Um, not very much, though. But they are really interesting creatures. Um, and in this case, um, 
and the ambassador has come back with people from the place where she was serving as an ambassador, which is España. And they come back to try to, um, the Philippines has been trying to break away from Spain, or in this case, España and Mexica Americana. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Um, One of the quotes from the book was that Espana had indeed wanted to renew the violence, this time testing the island's magic-fueled tech against their steam-powered machinery. So here we have the new world, the colonizers with their steam-powered machinery, and we've got the old world, um, the Duwata and the Aswang and the Filipino people, and their tech. They have tech, but it's magic-fueled tech. Um, So magic punk, maybe? Yeah. but that was it, that was an interesting one as well. Then there was Life Under Glass by Nevo. Um, this one, there wasn't really a massive steampunk um, theme to it. Uh, they're what they're doing. It's two sisters who are out in the um, in the forest gathering creatures for terrarium and what it says is our terrariums some the size of my fist and a few that stood waist high were full of sleeping animals and insects held in suspended animation until they could be released into the dome at the universal exposition in saigon and what that reminded me of i don't know if that was intentional it probably was was the old you know world's expositions and world's fair like the the exposition in paris where the eiffel tower was built and the chicago world's fair um, they've been all over the world for a long time, and so that's what this really reminded me of, the, the dome that's being built. They Because uh, it also says there were going to be eight domes altogether, three from Vietnam and five replicating domes from around the world. And the world was coming to Saigon in a year, and Lynn had observed Riley that we wanted the world to know that we could keep it under glass if we wished to, which I like that a lot. That struck me. Now, the story that was my absolute favorite is this next one, uh, Between Severed Souls by Paolo Chikiyamko. And it's, we've got deposed royalty, we've got imperial machines, <laughs> we've got uh, clockwork people, we've got women, spirits trapped in wood or made of wood. Um, and we've got Newcomen Clockman. And I actually had to look that up. I thought the name Newcomen was familiar. Uh, so I looked it up, and Thomas Newcomen was an English inventor <clears throat> who actually created the first practical steam engine in 1712. And um, the, so the clockmen that are in this, that they're stealing, they had to steal them. It's a similar idea to uh, the, clockwork, the, the clackers in Alchemy Wars, where the Dutch um, would execute anyone who had any... <laughs> bits and pieces of a clock clockwork man if they weren't if they were anyone but guild and they had pieces they would they would die immediately so it seems like the same idea here with the the uh, the new Coman clockman where it's almost impossible to get a hold of one that you can study but the the brothers in this did we've got domingo and dominador and uh, domingo is the he is the inventor uh dominador is the the more noble of the not noble of the two, as he's he he shows himself as nobility, um, very fancy, very high class. Um, there's there's loss here though. There's devastation. Domingo uh, lost his wife, and it was a horrible, horrible thing. Um, he never really recovered from it. But his brother brings him a piece of Nara 
wood. Uh, sorry, not Nara wood. It's a type of wood called, I believe it's pronounced Malawi. Um, and when Domingo looks at it, he starts to make out the impression of his wife's face in it. Um, his wife's not trapped in wood. What we've got, what we find out we've got, um, are spirits called Anito or Anito. And um, what that was, I looked it up, and apparently that the, the, the word itself was used by the Tagalog people to describe their act of worship. But more modern times, it's come to be a name for the various pre-Hispanic belief systems of the Philippines. And then what I found was that after the arrival of the Spanish missionaries, it also came to be used to refer to spirits, including household deities, deceased ancestors, nature spirit nymphs, and the Duatas, like we discussed earlier. Um, so Domingo sees his wife in there, and he starts to... <laughs> he starts to carve and carve and carve, and what he's finding is if he follows the path that the wood wants him to take, the carving goes beautifully. If he tries to deviate in any way to make it not look like his wife uh, or to put clothes on it as he's carving, to carve clothes into it, then the wood becomes very brittle and very hard to work, and at some points it even starts kicking out a horrible, horrible smelly resin. Um, It ruins some of his tools, so he has to follow what the wood wants him to follow. But what he ends up finding out... um, the spirit, the, the, it can talk. The tree spirit can talk, and he becomes very um, fascinated with her, and he keeps working on her. And what they're doing, they're installing him and another uh, uh, another companion, someone that he had had a great conflict with about his wife, but um, they start working together to put clockwork pieces in this um, wooden woman. And then she ends up helping him to try to defend the island when the uh, the empire shows up, and they get these these rocket packs that they put on, and it's 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 really cool. It was really really neat. Um, very very different. It was not something I think that have come could have come out of the the stilted western, the the, the bland and overused western steampunk. It was a completely new idea, and I really liked it, and I. Actually, I'm going to see if he's got any more um, about these characters because this was really good. Now, uh, The Unmaking of the Quadro Amoroso by Kate Osias. This one um, this one was interesting. It was a bunch of highly educated uh, students, engineer, um, a healer, and it's four of them. They're in a poly relationship, which I thought was, was really interesting and not seen nearly enough. Um, and that was this one wasn't one of my favorite ones. Uh, we did have some clockwork people and some broken bones, but this one was about revolution. This one was about um, fighting and vengeance and grief and wrath. And it wasn't like I said, it wasn't my favorite, but it was still beautifully written. Um, now my other favorite one was Working Woman by Olivia Ho, and this is about a clockwork woman, and she runs on coal. And she actually belongs to the British. She had been stolen by the Chinese. Um, and it was, it kind of symbolized, she, she kind of encapsulates, encapsulated the, the conflict between the invading British and the, the Chinese who were being colonized um, and forced into situations. So she was, this one was really cool. And there was a quote in this one that <laughs> was wonderful. It was, um... The old man who was responsible, part of the gang that stole her, he says, 
bringing all these machines into the business, it'll be the downfall of us all. In the old days, you threw an axe at a white man and he went away. <laughs> None of this mechanical devil shit. And that was my favorite. I loved that. Um, now, in Spider Here by Robert Liao, there were <laughs> clockwork spider fights. They're, the creatures are called casings, and they're built from organics. I mean, literally manipulating bone and sinew and organs. Um, it was interesting. Not exactly my cup of tea, but that's okay. It was good. Like I said, that's and that's what you have with an anthology. You generally aren't going to dig on everything. But um, the next one, The Chamber of Souls, this one had airships and alchemy and mysterious guardians and clockwork servants. Um, it was super amazing because this one, again, not something I have ever seen in any Western steampunk. We've got uh, the description of the clockwork servant. It said, uh, underneath its skin which wavered between translucency and unblemished coppery bronze were several layers of rotating gears that intertwined with leafy vines and moss that made up the substance of its body. Its eyes, twin orbs of jade, were fanned by small turquoise and deep blue feathers that added softness to its human-like face. From the top of its head trailed braided branches and vines from which mahogany green leaves, mushrooms, and dark flowers emerged." And that was just, that was so beautiful. I was just picturing this amazing clockwork creation. And again, that that also embodies that steampunk DIY aesthetic of we're going to take your clockwork man and <laughs> we're going to raise it with some, with, with some nature, with the beautiful plants and, you know, thriving plants that are surround us on a daily basis and things that are being chopped down and raised for, for more land and for room and to export resources back out to the West. And it's all, you know, it's all encapsulated in this clockwork uh, servant. Now, the next one was Petrified Ivana by, uh, or Petrified by Ivana Mendels. And this one this one was definitely in the category of taking it back. I mean, it absolutely was. This was about um, Dutch colonials coming in and doing what colonial, what colonizers do. And they came in and tried to take over. And what the says they had, um, the country had um, become an independent archipelago. And that was because of giant steam automatons that had been created by Professor Adipati Duanto in 1874. There were 12 steam titans, and <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a completely different area, but it reminded me a lot of the kaiju and the, the big Japanese war machines like Neon Genesis. Um, that's what I pictured when I, when I read them. Um, now, they were taken down after the fight and displayed in, a, in school. But apparently what happened was it kind of took the Dutch colonials by surprise. And they, the Dutch had, what this says was that the Dutch had never, never in their years of colonizing the archipelago had the Dutch seen any hint of technological advances. In just a couple of years that followed, the professor lashed out his geared titans upon them, wiping out every trace of Dutch outposts all over the archipelago. So they... They took back their country, and not only did they not try to assimilate the colonizers into the country, they wiped them out. They got rid of them. They sent them packing. They sent them on their way. Um, and they kept themselves to themselves, um, which I thought was was pretty cool. 
And then the last one that I've got here is The Insects and Women Sing. The Insects and Women Sing Together by Paranoelic. Um, and this one, again, involves a lot of the, the magic melded with the tech. Um, and we've got, <laughs> to the point that we've got a copper and bamboo water buffalo, um, which actually is sitting in an ocean now. Um, <laughs> it's got useless legs. It's sitting there, or not in an ocean, in a river. It's just sitting there. It's a water buffalo of bright metal and useful magic. Um, and that was pretty cool. It's like I said, again, not my cup of tea, but some people like all that magic melded in. It's not that I don't like the magic. I don't know. I'm picky. But the point of the entire book is that, or it feels like the point of the book, is that the reader, for those of us who are not, for those of us who are of Western persuasion, Western birth, European birth, reading this, we are seeing imperialism and colonialism directly from the viewpoint of those who have been colonized. And that in and of itself is an incredibly rare thing. Um, I mean, we have firsthand accounts, nonfiction accounts, but we don't see it a lot in fictional accounts, and we almost never see it in steampunk. Um, we saw some in, uh, we saw it in Easy Shawls Ever Fair, definitely. Um, it was, it was there, but we see it more, much more, much more strongly in this one, um, because the viewpoints, Everfair had multiple viewpoints, and it, it was European as well as American as well as um, African. This, this is all Southeast Asian. This is all Vietnamese. This is all Filipino. Um, and so we see things out of the eyes of people who are having their homes invaded, people who just want to live their lives, um, people who didn't ask for what happened to them, um, and again, the steampunk kind of brings it in and shows a different, a different aspect. And it shows what happens when you take that mystical, that magical, that ancient, ancient, ancient belief systems and traditions and you meld it with the tech and you get something absolutely amazing. I mean, anybody who's ever watched anime, you know, you see this all the time, that melding of magic and tech, um, and I, I guess it's, it's not that I don't like it. I do like it. Um, it just has to be the way that it's done. I'm not sure. I'm not thinking very well right now, so this episode is not going to go as, as good as some of my others. Um, but it's a good book. It's an important book. It shows the voices of not only uh, people of color from Southeast Asia, but queer people of color from Southeast Asia, um, which is marginalized of the marginalized of the marginalized. And we, these voices are getting out there thanks to the work that, you know, that Jamie Go and Joyce Chung did. These voices are getting out there. They're getting pushed out for people to see. Um, now the book's been out for a few years. I wish more people knew about it. I wish more people heard about it. It's, Never, it's not, as far as I know, it's not listed on any of the the core steampunk that should be read, and I think it should. I think it should be listed among the core, because those core books, I've been in, I've been looking into a lot of them lately as I'm writing my papers, and the core books are, by and large, European-centered, and it shouldn't, it doesn't need to be that way. So I hope that 
as you listen to this and you go buy the book and you read the book, um, for those of you that are not of color, for those of you who are like me, (laughs) if you go buy the book and you read the book and you see something else, you see something outside of yourself because white people of European extraction, we've been reading books about ourselves, just books about ourselves for a long time. We've been reading Steampunk about ourselves for decades now. And every, like I said before, everybody likes to see themselves inside of a book, but it's also refreshing every once in a while to step outside of that um, and to see things from a different point of view, especially in light of everything that is happening right now in the world, all of the horrible things that are happening, um, the horrible political figures that we have who are trying to erase those voices of color, who are trying to marginalize them, those voices that even take something as something as plain to see as Puerto Rico is part of America. We need to send them aid. But they're brown. They're not really ours. And they're nasty. We need to look outside of ourselves a lot more than we do. And this book is a very, very effective way to do that. And because of the fact that it's an anthology also does help that because it's not just one story, it's 12 stories, 12 different points of view, you know, multiple people, multiple sexualities, multiple choices in life. Um, Different, they're in different places as far as the colonization, as far as how they fight, as far as the wars that are happening to them, as far as their own conflicts and... I hope it encourages you to not only get the book, but to look for more stories by these authors uh, and, and spread your wings a little, spread your own wings a little bit. Um, because colonialism is bad. We've discussed that already. It's a bad thing. Um, and so we need to see how people survived it. And we also need to see how people, what, pe- what they think they would have done had this never happened, where they would have been. So that was... The Sea is Ours, Tales from Steampunk Southeast Asia, edited by Jamie Goh and Joyce Chung. And again, I wanted to apologize for um, my own performance and presentation in this episode. I was not at my best. Uh, This week has been a hell of a week, and apparently it's only continuing. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope to read more stories by all of these authors and by Jamie and Joyce. Um, And I, I hope that we got a little something out of this. You know, it's, like I said again, it's not my best work, but it is a good book. This is a very, very good book, and it's it's eye-opening, and it's beautiful. So I highly, highly recommend. Blue Stocking says go get it. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion truly does matter, and it does have an impact on how many people can find us. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for Born a Bullet Catcher's Daughter, or How a Carnival Kid Brought Down an Empire, with Rod Duncan's Fall of the Gaslit Empire series.
Dollhouse is Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Kajit Davis, who has the wares if you have the coin. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Sing and Sing. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Nicker Fokker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Don't have a private jet to get you away from the big ocean water? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. Want to help keep the library generators fueled? Visit our support page at spdhpod.com. Any contributions that you can give will be amazing and sincerely appreciated and will enable us to begin making kick-ass bunker breaster merchandise as soon as possible. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. We'll be stocking out. Tweet.